was in line at the post office uh, a few weeks ago. All good sermon illustrations come from the line at the post office. And there were two um, older women in front of me. And the woman directly in front of me said to the woman in front of her, Hey, can you scoot up a little? There's a line that's extending out into the lobby. And that woman replied, Hey, don't you know that COVID is going around? I would appreciate a little distance. And that woman said, Well, if you want distance, why don't you wear your mask? And she was like, those people out in the lobby are going to be fine. I just appreciate a little distance. And I'm standing there and I thought, oh man, here we go again. Have we learned nothing in this planet, you know? And it's one of those awkward moments where I was like, what do I say? What do I pray? And the pandemic revealed that when we were really put to the test as human beings, we didn't fare so well. You know, we're not as good as we thought we were. And it all feels a bit hopeless, doesn't it? David Brooks in a New York Times article that a couple of you sent me addressed this very issue. The article is entitled, How America Got Mean. Brooks offers several stories of what is kind of swirling about in culture that has led us to treat one another the way that we do. But he writes this, the most important story about why Americans have become sad and alienated and rude, I believe is also the simplest. We inhabit a society in which people are no longer trained in how to treat others with kindness and consideration. Our society has become one in which people feel licensed to give their selfishness free reign. The story I'm going to tell is about morals. In a healthy society, a web of institutions, families, schools, religious groups, community organizations, and workplaces helps form people into kind and responsible citizens. The sort of people who show up for one another. We live in a society that's terrible at moral formation. (laughs) Brooks goes on to note that there was a critical turning point just after World War II as people wrestled with the horrors of the 20th century. One camp, exemplified by theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, argued that events had exposed the prevalence of human depravity and the dangers of tribalism, nationalism, and collective pride. Niebuhr argued for more moral formation with an emphasis on humility. At the other end of the spectrum, characterized by Carl Rogers, who's the founder of the humanistic psychology movement, focused on the problem of authority. We need to liberate individuals from these authority structures. People are naturally good and can be trusted to do their own self-actualization. Looking around today, say at the post office or in the pandemic, we can figure out which camp won the day. Brooks concludes his article by offering large, sweeping, systematic solutions. But this morning, I want to get to the core. I think that's where Jesus takes us this morning in this story about a dinner party in Luke chapter 7. If we want to be a different type of person, a different type of citizen. It requires embracing something at the deepest level of our being. And that something is the gospel of grace. 
here at Oaks Parish, this gospel is one of our four core values. And it's actually like the root of all of our rootedness. The gospel of grace is the foundation of everything we are and everything we do at Oaks Parish. And the gospel of grace will cause us to be a very different sort of person at the post office. So I want to give you three words here this morning that you can take with you into the week. Abandonment, welcome, and peace. Abandonment, welcome, and peace. You start with this notion of abandonment. And to be transformed by the gospel of grace, it requires abandonment. The story of this scandalous woman entering the dinner party of Simon the Pharisee is ultimately a tale of two lives, two ways of being, two different sorts of belief, two radically different realities. And the power of the story is the comparison between the woman and the Pharisee. We find ourselves at this dinner party hosted by Simon. He's a Pharisee, a Jewish leader in the community. And there's two primary things of note. First, Simon views Jesus as his peer. Maybe even a celebrity minister of sorts. A rising rabbi here in the first century. He addresses Jesus as teacher, which can be translated master. Jesus is in a position to do something for Simon by way of his reputation. Second, in the ancient world, the windows and the doors would all be open in this dinner party. People from town would be walking by, observing what was happening inside the house, even overhearing the conversations. The door would be open to the house so that people from the outside could come in and they would sit around kind of the edges of the room observing what was going on. This is why Later in Luke's gospel, he records Jesus at another dinner party saying, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or brothers or relatives or rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. In the first century, when you hosted a dinner party like this, you weren't just hosting guests. You were putting on a show for the town. Maybe we assume the best of Simon. Maybe we give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he was genuinely curious about Jesus. Maybe he was thinking about leaving his life behind as a Pharisee, joining the disciples, following after Jesus. But the context of the dinner party, it really shows us that he's leveraging this opportunity. He's leveraging relationship with Jesus that somehow he might be repaid. Have you ever been around someone who does a, a lot of name dropping? It's like they'll say things like, yeah, the other day I was with so-and-so, or the other day I just happened to be on, on the phone with so-and-so. Oh, yeah, you know so-and-so, yeah. You know, that's, that's kind of the feeling we get with Simon the Pharisee. He's going to host this dinner party. He's going to invite Jesus. Jesus is going to be the center of attention, but Simon's also going to be the center of attention because in the days that follow, as he's having ordinary conversations with people on the streets in the town, he could say, oh yeah, I had a dinner party last night. Yeah, that guy, Jesus, he came, had a great conversation, really fascinating fellow. You know. So Simon is doing what you do in the first century to build reputation, to build your image, to maintain stature. 
And meanwhile, amidst his little project, a woman appears on the scene. We don't know her name. We don't know her background. But she is described as a woman in the city who was a sinner. Some scholars speculate that she was a prostitute. Perhaps in some sense she had done something scandalous according to Jewish law. It is interesting that her name is never given. This could be any one of us who have ever experienced shame. Any one of us who have walked into a room like this and felt unworthy. It's not scandalous that she was inside the house. In fact, this was part of the intent of the dinner party, as I explained moments ago. The nobility, the worthy, the influential, they were the ones who were seated at the table. And they generously allowed all the rabble to look on their proceedings. Who knows, maybe all these people on the edges might be inspired to live a life like us, they might say. What was scandalous is that the woman moved from the edge of the room toward the table. And she did so haphazardly, bumbling, fumbling, completely broken, weeping, a crying mess. We were talking about this this week. It was like probably one of those snot cries where you're just completely falling apart. You don't care about yourself anymore. And she just comes in tears and she bathes the feet of Jesus with her tears. And she dries his feet with her hair. And she kisses his feet. And she anoints them with oil. Simon the Pharisee is looking on. And in the first century, Pharisees were populist sorts of leaders who were trying in their best way to make Israel right with Yahweh. They thought that many of the priests at the temple had been corrupted by Rome. The Pharisees were exercising leadership out among the people, in the suburbs, in the synagogues. And they had all sorts of documentation on what you needed to do to live a life holy unto Yahweh, to make yourself right, to justify yourself before him, including who not to touch and who not to be around. This is why Simon replied, talking about Jesus, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She is a sinner. This leads us to reflect on the posture of our own heart. Simon refused to abandon his own righteousness in the presence of Jesus. Consequently, Jesus was simply a means to an end. In contrast, the woman, she entered the house with abandon because Jesus was the end. She was his only hope. It leads us to this question. Why is it important for you to be seen as righteous? It's so simple. But Jesus doesn't need your righteousness. He only needs you. He invites us to come with abandon. The second word is welcome. The grace of the gospel opens our heart 
to welcome God into our lives. You know, to our modern ears, the woman's actions, what she's doing here, it, it all sounds pretty strange. She's washing Jesus' feet with her tears, drying them with her hair, kissing his feet, anointing them with oil. Several years ago here at Oaks Parish, we were installing new leaders. We had ordained elders. We were commissioning deacons. And so we decided that in addition to a commissioning prayer, our elders as part of the ceremony would wash the feet of our deacons that we were installing. And it sounded like a wonderfully symbolic idea. Our elders would be serving those who would be serving our community in this wonderful act of humility. And so before the service, I was giving instructions to our elders and I told them, hey, when you go to, to wash our deacon's feet, you know, just, just take your hand and just pour water. This is a symbolic act. But one of our elders went full on foot massage, rubbing feet, smiling, just really leaning into it, pedicure style, all in. And my kids thought it was the strangest, weirdest thing that we had ever done as a church. And I'm letting you in on a little family inside church joke. Because for us, the church is a, a bit of a family business here. Uh, my kids named, nicknamed that the deaconing. Creating a verb from a noun to forever immortalize this event of foot fetish that we did here as a church. We, this was all done in a bowl, and we have that bowl at our house that we sometimes put salad in for dinner. It's called the deaconing bowl. <clears throat> it's weird. What this woman is doing here seems kind of weird to our modern ears, right? <clears throat> But in ancient Judaism in particular, all of these actions were gestures of hospitality. A dinner host would welcome guests into their home by offering to wash their dusty feet. They would give them a kiss at the door, much like we extend a handshake or a hug when someone comes to our own home. What's truly scandalous in this story is not that the woman has made these overtures, but that Simon had failed to do so. Simon says so arrogantly, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is touching him. And to that, Jesus replies, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. but She has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. It's amazing to realize that in the presence of this Jesus, the, the woman was the true host. Jesus welcomed her into an alternate reality within reality, and it transformed the woman. In the story, if you look at it, just along the lines of hospitality, this was her house. She was the host. Jesus was her guest. 
What do we learn from these contrasting pictures of hospitality between the woman and Simon? Well, scholar Daryl Bach says a question to ponder is why those outside the faith like tax collectors and sinners were so drawn to Jesus. What did they sense from him that made his message of interest to them? We spend a great deal of our time and our energy building our own righteousness. It feels like a lifelong construction project. We do this through our careers, our pursuit of virtue, our need to be right or on the right side of an issue, framing things in just the right way, our achievements, managing our image, making sure that everyone around us is happy. I mean, even as I list all those things, I feel exhausted by it. I know it's true of me. I know it's true for you. And here's the problem. Our sense of righteousness, it ebbs and flows, comes and goes. It's there one day, the next day it's gone. And it honestly, it pales in comparison to the righteous demands of God for what we should be as human beings according to his law. The story here reveals that the woman was wise. Simon was the fool. The woman was honest. She was open. She was soft. She was vulnerable. She was tired of playing all of society's games. Her project of righteousness, it was bombed out. And in this moment, she realized that if the God of the universe would welcome her, that's all that she needed for the rest of her life. The reason why sinners are attracted to Jesus is because he welcomes us as we truly are. Not as we hope to be and not as we pretend to be. And when you know that the God of the universe loves you, especially because of your sin, your shame, and your insecurities, then he alone becomes your security. Let me say that one more time because I, I really want this to, to sink in. When you know that the God of the universe loves you, especially because of your sin, your shame, and your insecurities, then he alone becomes your security. And from that place of security, you will welcome the presence of God. You will play host to his visitation no matter where you find yourself. I experienced this on Thursday morning. My daughter, Grayson, she passed her driver's test. So uh, Thursday morning, we made the pilgrimage to the DMV, this ancient practice, this sojourning. And uh, obviously, we were there for hours on end. We take a number, and they told us, we'll text you. You can go down the street for coffee. So we're walking down the street. I'm thinking the whole time, man, I've got a lot to do today. I've got an agenda that's going to justify my existence by the time I go to bed tonight. And I need to get to work on this agenda. One of those things was finishing this sermon. Um, but I realized walking to Starbucks that I had an opportunity to spend a quiet moment and have coffee with my daughter. And so I just kind of realized the Holy Spirit speaking to me in this moment, just kind of let go 
We had a conversation about all kinds of stuff. It was a really wonderful morning. And when I let go of that which could justify me, I was able to welcome the presence of Jesus. I was able to recognize this was a divine moment, a divine appointment. And when we feel the welcome of God, when we know it, we will welcome his presence in our life. Abandonment, welcome. Third word, peace. Grace moves us from shame to peace. To help Simon understand the woman's actions and perhaps more importantly, his own heart, Jesus tells Simon a story, a parable. Pick back up in verse 41. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Simon knows all the answers, you know. Goes on in verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. That's fascinating. It's so counterintuitive to our human logic. We think we're always needing to prove ourselves. And if, if we do that, if that's true, then we'll have little need for the love of God. We'll have little need for desire to him. But when we realize that our righteousness is nothing, we will cling to Jesus and no one else. We will love him because there's nothing else besides him to love. We welcome the presence of the Lord to the extent that we need it. Simon needed the words of others. Praise and affirmation in the community in the face of his persistent insecurities. This brings us back to the diagnosis of David Brooks in our society. In some sense, Simon was a little narcissist. (laughs) And this is what Brooks says about this. He says, expecting people to build a satisfying moral and spiritual life on their own by looking within themselves is asking too much. A culture that leaves people morally naked and alone leaves them without the skills to be decent to one another. Social trust falls partly because more people are untrustworthy. That creates crowds of what psychologists call vulnerable narcissists. We all know grandiose narcissists, people who revere themselves as the center of the universe. Vulnerable narcissists are the more common figures in our day. People who are also addicted to thinking about themselves, but who often feel anxious, insecure, Avoidant, intensely sensitive to rejection, they scan for hints of disrespect. Their self-esteem is wildly in flux. Their uncertainty about their inner worth triggers, triggers cycles of distrust, shame, and hostility. Notice what the woman needs. Not the words of anyone else, only the words of Jesus. And in the face of Simon's condemnation, Jesus speaks over the woman's life. Your sins are forgiven. As the people around the edges of the room also murmur, Jesus says a second time to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Whether it's praise or critique, the words of others will never be sufficient for our heart. 
Our heart is too vast and immense for human words. We need something more. Jesus went to the cross to die for all of your unrighteousness, all of your sin, all of your shame. He's taken all of that away and instead he has embraced you in his divine love. And that love will go to the deepest recesses of your soul. And when you know that you've been forgiven much, you will love him and him alone with all of your being. Because no matter what the voices say, his is the only one that matters. And just like the woman's accusers, when the voices of this world utter the whispers of condemnation, we hear the words of Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. But what about what so-and-so says? Shh, shh, shh. No, 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 no. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The author of Hebrews in chapter 12 says that Jesus speaks a better word over our life because it's his final word. So in summary, it's the gospel of grace that uniquely equips us for the line at the post office. Looking to Christ, we become people of grace. We don't need any other righteousness. We've got him. He welcomes us as sinners so that in response, we might welcome him. His word is final, spoken over our life. Throughout this series, we're asking three final questions that we might be more deeply rooted. And when I say deeply rooted this morning, deeply rooted in the gospel of grace. So to help you get deeply rooted more in the gospel of grace, first, what is that next step in discipleship with Jesus. What is that for you? We talked about joining discipleship groups. Maybe it's tithing. Maybe it's showing up here each and every week, refreshing your spiritual habits. What's that next step? Second, to what community has God called you to be on mission? There's people that you interact with each and every week, people that you love, people that you pray for, who are those people that you will serve and love Third, how will you prioritize life together here at Oaks Parish? We can't do this walk alone. We need one another. We have lots of opportunities, such as our social hours, our potlucks, where we're able just to be together as a church. How can you make that a priority in your schedule? Through all of these things, we make a conscious choice to root ourselves in this gospel of grace. Let me pray for us. O God, our King, by the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, on the first day of the week, you conquered sin, you put death to flight, and you gave us the hope of everlasting life. Redeem all of our days by this victory. Forgive our sins. Banish our fears. Make us bold to praise you and to do your will. And steal us to wait for the consummation of your kingdom on that last great day. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.